Good afternoon. It's uh, Friday the 20th of October 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Uh, joining me by video link today, we have Vanessa Bailey and Ben Rubin. Uh, so welcome to the programme both. Uh, we're going to get started today just by uh, making a final mention of uh, Andrew Bridgen's efforts in Parliament. Uh, he, of course, is uh, speaking uh, in a, a German debate uh, this afternoon on excess mortality, as he says in this uh, press release here. Uh, this is the first time a government will have to answer concerns about the global issue of excess deaths. Um, so he is uh, suggesting people tune in if you're not a UK column member uh, anyway, because uh, Extra is on at the same time, but uh, tune in at, uh, to Parliament TV at 2pm this afternoon. Uh, and of course, people are meeting on Parliament Square uh, at around the same time to offer support. Uh, so the question is, um, what uh, have the MPs that have been approached by uh, people in support of Andrew Bridge and asking them to attend uh, this event, uh, uh, this debate? What have the, has the response been? Um, so let's just have a look, first of all, here at uh, the Right Honourable Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, and he uh, is very polite. He says, thank you for your correspondence regarding the adjournment debate on trends in excess deaths on Friday the 20th of October. I'm grateful to you for bringing this debate to my attention. Unfortunately, Friday is a day that I generally spend in the constituency and I already have a surgery scheduled for that afternoon, so I will not be able to attend. Uh, so that is uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Let's look at Helen Morgan, MP. And thank you to everybody that has been sending these through to us. We've just chosen a couple here. Uh, this from Helen Morgan, MP. Thank you for writing to me regarding the adjournment debate on excess death scheduled for Friday the 20th of October. Unfortunately, I will not be able to attend this debate as of long-standing commitments in North Shropshire, where I will be meeting with constituents to listen to their concerns. Um, so uh, this seems like a templated response. Uh, here is another one, uh, this time from Cheryl Murray, MP. Uh, and, uh, well, she couldn't be bothered writing the full templated response. She just said, my attendance will depend on other diary engagements. Um, so, look, what I would say to this is, that uh, none of these MPs can be allowed to get away with this. This is an important debate. They should have been at it. And anybody that has received a fob-off uh, email or letter of that type, uh, I think should be going back uh, to uh, you know, put a little bit of pressure on there. Uh, in the meantime, I just want to mention this is from HART, which is the Health Advisory and Recovery Team. There's a group of doctors and, and so on that have been campaigning on the issue of uh, the uh, COVID lockdowns and so on for uh, several years now. Uh, and they have issued a joint letter um, about Andrew Bridgen. This is for constituents of Andrew Bridgen. So if you are one of his constituents, maybe you'd like to print this out a few times and send it around uh, people in his constituency. Let's just zoom in on this. We're writing to you as a group of medical doctors and scientists concerned with public health and the welfare of our society. We're united by our shared interest in ensuring that our government's response to health crises is transparent, accountable, and underpinned by scientific evidence. Uh, we wish to express our support for Member of Parliament, for your Member of Parliament, Andrew Bridgen. Uh, as healthcare professionals, we've been closely following the ongoing discourse around the government's response to the COVID pandemic. Uh, and they go on to say that, uh, uh, regrettably, instead of being applauded for his diligence and commitment to public service, uh, he has been made a scapegoat. Uh, and as doctors as scientists, they are dedicated to the health of their patients. Um, but they believe that by supporting leaders who seek truth, transparency and accountability, uh, they're helping to foster a society that values evidence-based decision-making, respects scientific insights and prioritizes public health. And uh, they just end with a thank you for the time and consideration and respectfully ask that his constituents uh, consider voting for him at the next election. Uh, ben, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this. Uh, I just feel like it's too little too late, to be honest with you, and it really throws into question our entire system of governments. It should have happened two years ago. Uh, we've known about these increased deaths, and also um, we're talking about the deaths. I don't know if, if the um, decrease in fertility and the birth rate is up for discussion, which is you know, just as serious on the other end of the scale. Um, I think that the regulator and the NHS should have pulled the plug on the vaccination program within months of it starting. The data coming out of the system was fairly conclusive that it was not going as it should have been going. 
I think the scheduling of this debate is an insult to those who've lost their lives in this process. I think it's remarkable that they've just put it in the graveyard slot. Sorry, no pun intended on, on a Friday afternoon. And uh, ultimately, this is just another nail in the coffin. Again, no pun intended of the Westminster system, as far as I'm concerned. These MPs can't be trusted to do their jobs. Uh, indeed, which is why uh, people need to be uh, getting a move on uh, with the pressure. Uh, now, let's uh, move uh, topics then uh, onto Israel uh, and uh, the Middle East. And of course, uh, we had Rishi Sunak uh, heading over to uh, meet with uh, the various government agencies over there uh, to support the war on Gaza, apparently. It seems to be what the sentiment is, uh, because, of course, he was absolutely clear uh, that he wanted to share the deep condolences of the British people, uh, but to make sure that uh, uh, there is deterrence and further incursions and strengthening security for Israel in the long term. Now, uh, I know he said that you're taking every precaution to avoid harming civilians, and I'd like to know how he had come to that decision. Uh, in direct contrast with the terrorists of Hamas, he said, which seek to put civilians in harm's way. So this is uh, the narrative of Rishi Sunak. Uh, in the meantime, James Cleverly uh, is traveling around the Middle East to try and, well, he describes it as uh, avoid an escalation. Um, so uh, James Cleverly is meeting leaders in Egypt, Turkey and Qatar. Rishi Sunak, of course, also met with uh, Saudi Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia yesterday. Uh, but Cleverly is uh, hoping that in the next three days that he's going to prevent the conflict from spreading across the region. That's what he says anyway, uh, and seek a peaceful resolution. I haven't heard anything from the rhetoric of anybody in the West, which gives any indication that anybody is seeking from for a peaceful resolution. Uh, the press release on this said that he will push for an agreement on humanitarian access to Gaza, uh, the release of British hostages and other uh, foreign nationals and securing safe, safe passage for British nationalists to leave Gaza. Uh, and uh, this, he says, follows a £10 million increase in aid funding for occupied Palestinian territories. Uh, that money going to government uh, trusted partners, as they describe it. Um, now, the next thing I just wanted to, to mention here, and maybe Vanessa will have a comment on this in a minute, uh, was this protest in the United States, uh, the, or demonstration rather. Uh, 300 arrested, said the Washington Post, as Jewish protesters in DC demanded Israel-Gaza ceasefire. Um, we have a, a little bit of, uh, of video on this, so let's just have a look. So they are calling for a ceasefire, and uh, just looking at the uh, at the some of the commentary in the article uh, from the Washington Post here, uh, they're saying we are here to say not in our name. We're here to say as we are here as Jews, many descendants of survivors of genocide, to stop a genocide from unfolding in real time. And uh, you can see uh, what it says on their banners there: "Our blood is the same color." Uh, so. Uh, Wanted to highlight that because there's been a lot of comment about uh, the dangers of uh, demonstrations in support of what's going on in, in support of people in Gaza uh, turning into something more violent. And uh, we're, that's not what we're saying so far. And it would be, uh, I think I would be asking questions if there's any sense of uh, violence coming out of uh, protests on this in the coming days and weeks. But in the meantime, the main news is, of course, the West does not want a ceasefire. Uh, and uh, I'm, I've labeled this stop the warmongering because th there has been an effort in the uh, United Nations to get a resolution uh, in order to what they described as create humanitarian pauses to deliver what they called life-saving aid to millions in Gaza. Uh, now, there was a vote on this, uh, and I just have a little bit of video just to show what the result of that vote was. Those against? Abstentions? 
The result of the voting is as follows. 12 votes in favor, one vote against, two abstentions. The draft resolution has not been adopted owing to the negative vote of a permanent member of the council. So th this vote was not passed because uh, of the veto power of permanent uh, members of the Security Council. And of course, this is something that the United States and the UK have been complaining bitterly about uh, for a long period of the time now, as China and Russia have attempted to prevent uh, Western interventions abroad. And they have vetoed Security Council resolutions demanding uh, some kind of military action in, in other countries, regime change and so on. But in this case, they've decided, uh, the, the Americans have decided to use their veto in order to prevent any kind of ceasefire in, uh, in Gaza. Now, if you were watching closely there, you may have noticed that the United Kingdom and Russia both abstained. Now, they abstained for different reasons. Uh, so let's have a look at the uh, UK reason, first of all. Uh, we've, well, this, what uh, Barbara Wood here, Woodward here is talking about is uh, we voted no. They didn't vote no on this resolution. They voted no on the amendments that the Russians were attempting to put forward, which is calling for a complete cessation of all the violence. Um, so the UK voted against the Russian amendments to, 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 for a complete ceasefire, and they abstained. Uh, and the reason on, on the latest, on the final uh, draft, and the reason that they abstained in that was because uh, they had decided that... Uh, because there was nothing in the language condemning Hamas and uh, making clear that Israel had the right to defend itself, uh, that they would abstain in the main vote. Uh, but they also voted no to the Russian amendments. Uh, and she also said, we remain clear too that all possible measures on the ground must be taken to ensure civilian casualties are minimized and to facilitate uh, humanitarian aid. You'll note she doesn't say uh, to ensure that civilian casualties are stopped, is to make sure that they're minimized. Uh, Vasily uh, Nebenzia, who's the Russian uh, permanent representative to the UN, said uh, the time for diplomatic metaphors is gone. Anyone who does not support Russia's draft resolution, this was for a complete ceasefire on this issue, bears responsibility for what happens. And he then criticized the draft that was finally voted on. Uh, it has no clear call for a ceasefire. It will not help stop the bloodshed. So the United States uh, voted against it. And there they said, uh, this is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, their ambassador, uh, this resolution did not mention Israel's right to self-defense. Israel has the inherent right of self-defense. That is their typo, by the way, uh, as reflected in Article 51 of the UN Charter. Uh, and then finally, uh, just before we move to Vanessa, I just wanted to mention uh, a comment from uh, Juliet Tuma, who's uh, from the United Nations, uh, saying basically Gaza has become a hellhole. Time is running out. It has been almost two weeks, two very long weeks, uh, and UNRWA has not been able to bring in any supplies to Gaza. So uh, before you go into your, your main segment, Vanessa, uh, you got any comments on the, US, the UN vote? Well, it's quite extraordinary that they talk about Israel's right to self-defense when Palestine apparently has no right to self-defense or to resist one of... Uh, one of the most protracted terrorist attacks against the, the very uh, existence of Palestinians for the last 75 years. Um, sorry, Mike. No, you go ahead. Okay, so um, what I want to look at today is following on from Tibi Potovoli, the Israeli ambassador to the UK, who claimed uh, in a Sky News interview that there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. As of about 10 minutes ago, the Palestinian Health Ministry put out figures of 4,137 dead, many of those women and children, 13,000 injured, 1,000 missing, mostly children, presumably still buried under the rubble of Zionist carpet bombing. Um, Yanis Varoufakis put out an article on the 15th of October a list of war crimes and crimes qualifying as genocide committed by Israel in Gaza between the 7th and the 14th of October. He says, defenders of Israel's bombing and invasion of Gaza have challenged me to offer a chapter and verse list of war crimes that Israel has committed since the Hamas offensive of 7th of October. Here is an indicative but not exhaustive list. There is no doubt Israel is investing in war crimes to affect its recapture 
and ethnic cleansing of Gaza, while at the same time practicing similar tactics in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. I recommend everybody goes and reads his list of crimes. Mint Press News picked up the article and ran a series of, um, of images. This is the genocide. Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court Genocide Article uh, 6C. 6C, sorry. Deliberately inflicting on a group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposition of a complete siege of the Gaza Strip, totally depriving Gazans of electricity, food, fuel, and tightening even more the existing 16 year old blockade thereof. Then moving on, there's a recent report just put out by the UN or by experts from the UN who decry the bombing of hospitals and schools as crimes against humanity and call for the prevention of genocide. Interesting that we're seeing United Nations rapporteurs using the term genocide here. Um, let's have a look at who those rapporteurs actually are. You can freeze frame this later and read through. Um, but there's various uh, specialists from all over the world uh, reporting or putting together this report, which is quite shocking in its content. So if we move on to the report itself, uh, experts today expressed outrage against the deadly strike at Al-Akhli Arab Hospital in Gaza City, the Baptist Hospital, which killed more than 470 civilians on Tuesday the 17th, trapping hundreds under the rubble. The strike reportedly followed two warnings issued by Israel that an attack on the hospital was imminent and it should be evacuated um, if, uh, sorry, if, if people inside were not evacuated. The strike against the hospital is an atrocity. We are equally outraged by the deadly strike on the same day on an UNRWA school located in Al-Makhazi refugee camp that sheltered some 4,000 displaced people as well as two densely populated refugee camps, the experts said. So continuing on, um, one of the strikes today, and remember that uh, strikes against uh, places of worship, so against mosques or against church, churches is also perceived uh, under international law as a war crime. Now, there were reports that this church, the St. Porphyros uh, Church, sorry, I mangled that, um, a few days ago, but in reality, um, the Zionist missiles uh, targeted the clergy house, which was very close to the church itself. The church is only meters away from the Baptist hospital. Um, it's one of the oldest churches in the region, actually. The original church was built in the 5th century. This church itself was established by the Crusaders in the 1160s and 50s. In 2014, it was again used as a shelter for Gazans trying to escape uh, the Zionist bombs back in the 2014 aggression. Um, there were a thousand people in the church. Uh, obviously, dozens were killed and many more are still being searched for. So the UN experts recall that the UN Security Council has repeatedly condemned the use of starvation of civilians as a method of warfare, which is prohibited under international humanitarian and criminal law. The unlawful denial of humanitarian access and depriving civilians of objects indispensable to their survival are also a violation of international humanitarian law. They call for the protection of all humanitarian workers. We've seen uh, numerous attacks, particularly on uh, Syrian, uh, Arab, uh, sorry, on uh, Red Crescent uh, workers and paramedics. Um, and the World Health Organization documented more than 136 attacks on healthcare services in the occupied Palestinian territory, including 59 attacks on the Gaza Strip, which resulted in the death of at least 16 health workers since the beginning of hostilities. Israeli bombardment on Gaza has also killed 15 staff of the uh, UNRWA agency and four Palestine Red Crescent paramedics in an ambulance. An ambulance driver of um, Majan David Adom in Israel lost his life while driving uh, to treat injured people. Moving on through the report, <clears throat> we've seen, um, I think for me, one of the most heinous crimes of this particular aggression against Gaza, and many people are describing it as a second Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians that began in 1948 
I would say that the first NACBAR never finished, and it has continued for the last 75 years with the periodic mowing of the lawn, as the Israelis call it, in Gaza from 2008-9, 2012-2014, 2021, and now in 2023. Um, And one of the worst crimes that I've seen so far by Israel against the people of Gaza is to uh, demand that the people evacuate from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, uh, and then to effectively bomb the convoys carrying women and children, whole families and all their belongings from the north to the south. I also want to point out that there are nine main hospitals in Gaza. Seven are now declared to be out of service. There are six in the north, three in the south. So Israel demanding that people evacuate from north to south also means that they cut down on the ability of the hospitals to cope with the numbers of uh, injured. Um, three, have, three of those hospitals have been bombed. Four have been told they should evacuate. Two are uh, keeping going by using well water and ice cream trucks are being used as temporary morgues. So continuing on with the UN report, the complete siege of Gaza com- coupled with unfeasible evacuation, as I mentioned, and forcible population transfers is a violation of international humanitarian and criminal law. It is also unspeakably cruel. Um, And then moving on, I wanted to um, show a report, two reports from a young journalist inside Gaza that I met in 2012 and who has covered the Israeli aggressions against Gaza since uh, 2008-9. So Noor Harazin, her first report, it's a an excerpt from her report for uh, China, uh, CC. Uh, the, the, yeah. yeah, thank you, Mike. Standing. The situation is indescribable. Whole families, children under the rubble, children being killed. I have never witnessed anything like that. I've been covering escalations on Gaza for years now. And what we're witnessing right now is whole massacres. These ambulances are arriving from Abu Jbara family, one of the families that reside in Deir el-Balah city, which is located in southern Gaza, where hundreds of thousands of family from northern Gaza basically and from central Gaza city evacuated to this city because they thought that they will be safe and this is a shelter for them because this is what, what was published by the Israeli military for the residents of Gaza and northern Gaza to move to cities in uh, uh, southern Gaza. However, what we were saying from the morning while I, I was here, I am here in Shuhada Al-Aqsa Hospital is hundreds of people, hundreds of children. I'm losing the words. More ambulances arrive to the hospital. It's a total And then the second uh, video was published yesterday by Noor, just showing uh, a brief 30 seconds of her life reporting in Gaza right now. So back to the report. Um, The UN rapporteurs say we are sounding the alarm. There is an ongoing campaign by Israel resulting in crimes against humanity in Gaza. Considering statements made by Israeli political leaders and their allies accompanied by military action in Gaza and escalation of arrest and killing in the West Bank, there is also a risk of genocide against the Palestine people, the experts said. There are no justifications or exceptions for such crimes. We are appalled by the inaction of the international community in the face of belligerent warmongering. The Gazan population, half of whom are children, have already suffered many decades of unlawful, brutal occupation, 
and lived under the blockade for 16 years. And they uh, finally said um, the occupation needs to end and there must be reparation, restitution and reconstruction towards full justice for Palestinians. And Mike, what I wanted to show the final um, video in my report, just to digress a little bit, this was an interview by uh, Rory Suchet at RT of Amir Whiteman, um, uh, the founder of the Likud uh, liberal group. Now, why I want people to watch this, it's very interesting, the connection that is being made both by Biden and by Amir Whiteman between Hamas and Putin. Biden has basically said that Hamas and Putin are similar in the sense that they both want to annihilate neighboring democracies. And here you have Amir Whiteman literally threatening um, uh, Russia and pointing out the fact that Russia is involved in Ukraine, which of course we know Russia has funded the neo-Nazi militants uh, during the 2014 uh, coup that was orchestrated uh, by the US um, and helped and supported and endorsed by Israel. And we know that there are Israeli uh, IDF uh, fighting in Ukraine alongside the neo-Nazi battalions because many of them have declared that they will now come back to Israel. So if we can roll this video. Mr. Weidman, it's all a lie. It's all smoke and mirrors, right? Listen, Honestly. listen, all the countries you have mentioned, are all of them are terrorist countries. Syria, oh, they're Mexico, all terrorist Assad countries. Genocide of Jordan, Assad an American is a ally, is a terrorist country. Turkey, Venezuela, the African Union. Freaking people in his country under Soviet, under Russian support. He's a murderer. He's a mass murderer who should be hanged in public like the Nazis have been hanged in public. The fact that these people are the people saying that this has happened, exactly shows my point. And if you are not able to understand that, and I get, I get, with all due respect, that I understand you are on the Russian payroll, and I understand this is a Russian propaganda, but you have to be very careful, because let me tell you, we're going to finish this war. We're going to win because we're stronger. After this, Russia will pay the price. Believe me, Russia will, Russia pay, will pay the, the price. price. Russia is supporting the enemies of Israel. Russia is supporting Nazi people who want to commit genocide on us. And just Russia will pay the price. Russia also. Now, let me listen to me very carefully. We are going to finish with these Nazis. We're going to win this war. It's going to take the time it's going to take, but we're going to win this war. Afterwards, we're not forgetting what you are doing. We're not forgetting. We will come. We will make sure that Ukraine wins. We will make sure that you pay the price for what you have done. You as Russia and you and as all the enemies of Israel and you as all the people who are now making everything they can to support genocide of the Jews in Israel. We are not forgetting. We are not forgetting. Remember exactly what I'm saying now. You will pay the price. Quite extraordinary. So while supporting Nazis in Ukraine, yes, they uh, are claiming that everyone else is a Nazi. Yes. Now, look, uh, Vanessa, I was making this point on Wednesday's program. I'm just going to make it again now because the Belt and Road Initiative uh, conference is going on in Beijing at the moment. Uh, and let's just contrast the kind of language that we've heard from Rishi Sunak over the last couple of days from Biden uh, that we've just heard from that Israeli representative there uh, and uh, bring Xi Jinping on screen and see what he was saying in his keynote uh, to the uh, Belt and Road Conference. Uh, we should all treat each other as friends and partners, respect and support each other and help each other succeed. Helping others is also helping oneself. Uh, he said, we have learned that humankind is a community with a shared future. China can only do well when the world is doing well. Uh, and uh, when China does well, the world gets even, will get even better. The modernization we're pursuing is not for China alone, but for all developing countries through our joint efforts. Uh, global modernization should be pursued to enhance peaceful development and mutually beneficial cooperation and bring prosperity to all Belt and Road cooperation is, is based on the principle of planning together, building together, and benefiting together. Uh, and he said it transcends differences between civilizations, cultures, social systems, and stages of development. Now, uh, I'm going to say, you know, not everything that was in his speech 
uh, everybody will agree with. But Vanessa, it seems to me that, again, we have this very stark divide between the mentality in the West and the mentality in the East. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not hearing uh, the war drums uh, being beaten uh, from China in particular at this point in time. No, and I mean, what is quite extraordinary is that Russia, according to TASS today, uh, lost 19 uh, civilians in the initial uh, days of the Operation Al-Aqsa. Uh, and they have two hostages inside Gaza, Russian uh, citizens. And yet we don't see Russia calling for war. We see Russia sending 27 tons of humanitarian aid to the Rafa border. This is the difference, right? Yes. Indeed. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's move on then. And uh, well, first of all, uh, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, uh, please uh, go to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership there would be very welcome and you'd be welcome in the community. Uh, or you can pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms. Uh, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, and I just want to uh, let people know that uh, this interview with uh, with Vanessa, with Eva Bartlett and Cynthia McKinney is uh, on the UK Column website. It's called Understanding Gaza Under Fire and Under Siege. Uh, the feedback on this has been very positive so far. Uh, but uh, Vanessa, I don't know if you've got briefly anything you want to say about that. I think one of the most amazing facts that came out of that interview, Mike, and I think both of us were a little bit um, silenced by it, was when Cynthia McKinney um, explained that during her 12 years in Congress, she basically refused to sign the Pledge of Allegiance to Israel because, as she said, why as an American citizen should I be signing allegiance to another country? And for those 12 years, she was therefore vilified um, and marginalized against uh, because of her refusal to sign such a such a pledge. Yeah, indeed, that that you're right. That did uh, um, shock me somewhat. But anyway, okay, uh, let's move on and uh, welcome Ben to the program. And Ben, uh, we want to talk about EY and uh, uh, that's Ernst and Young, as it used to be, and and AI. Indeed. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, so yeah, big news from the world of professional services. EY. The World Economic Forum strategic partner, formerly known as Ernst & Young, where I actually worked for a couple of years as a director in their London offices, has just announced the launch of its own AI platform. They describe it as a unifying platform which combines our vast experience in strategy, transactions, transformation, risk, assurance and tax with EY technology platforms and leading edge capabilities facilitated by an ecosystem spanning technology, business and academia, EY.AI builds confidence, helps create exponential value and augments potential. And if anyone watching knows what that means, if you could please send us an email to let us know, that would be fantastic. Um, they have already developed a go-to-market proposition. So this is how they engage with clients. So this is just to give you an idea about how they go about interacting with an organization that wanted to use this AI platform. They define the strategy. They identify ways to maximize value creation. They then build confidence in AI and empower the workforce. So this is their uh, process for um, deploying this technology inside client organizations to build confidence in the technology, to build trust in the technology. But, but trust is a huge, huge issue for artificial intelligence at the moment. People still don't trust it. So these organizations are very heavily invested in building trust and fundamentally augmenting and transforming people. This is about the workforce. This is about changing the way that people inside large organizations expect to do the work that they do on a daily basis, augmented by these technologies that are still, as far as I'm concerned, completely unproven, very poorly regulated and untested. Um, so this all fits into a much broader um, uh, trend. You would have no doubt um, noticed over the past 12 months, 18 months, that AI has been absolutely everywhere. We want AI everything, apparently. Uh, this has included major investments from all of the big professional services firms. So we've talked a bit about EY, but KPMG are also in on the game. They've invested $2 billion in a strategic, strategic partnership with Microsoft. 
Deloitte has launched a strategic partnership with NVIDIA, the microchip manufacturer. PwC has invested a billion dollars of partner money over the next three years and launched its own chatbot, Chat PwC. Uh, Bain has set up a strategic partnership with OpenAI, and McKinsey has actually been well ahead of the curve on this. They've been active in the AI space for um, nearly a decade now via its Quantum Black subsidiary. And um, looking at um, formal statements, formal communications that have been released by these firms over the past five years, we've done some analysis on this, it looks like something around 20% of all press releases being issued from these firms relate to AI. And that is a huge proportion, given that they also issue releases relating to financial results, executive appointments, primary research, thought leadership, all the other things they talk about. AI is actually factored in 20% of the information that they've been putting out proactively. And I think it's really important just to reinforce what these firms are there to do, right? So they um, exist, primarily to maximize partner bonuses. Yeah, so they're there like all corporations to maximize profits for the people that own them. They're there then to maximize client profitability. So their primary purpose is to um, expand profit margins for large corporations. That's the, the, the vast majority of the work that they do. And then ultimately to maintain and to reinforce the status quo. So they work with all of the big global corporations, all the big government departments, anything that's big, essentially, big international, supranational, that's where these companies operate. And all of the ones that I've just mentioned are strategic partners of the World Economic Forum. And and they're actually a primary delivery mechanism, a delivery channel for WEF strategies out into the economic and the political system, because the relationships that these small group, maybe 10 or 15 international businesses have with all of the global corporations and all of the big government departments and all of the NGOs makes them a very efficient and powerful way of getting that, um, those, that, those strategies and, and that information out into the system. Um, they also just, just have this incredibly depressing um, perspective on this technology. There's this um, image um, from a, a recent uh, EY report, which basically says that um, is AI the start of the truly creative human? This idea that it's only now in 2023 with artificial intelligence that humanity can finally unlock its latent creativity. This is just nonsense, absolute nonsense. It's, it, it's insulting to the human race fundamentally. Yeah, And actually, my view is that it's the end of human creativity and deliberately so. And EY sponsors the Tate, by the way. Yeah, So one of the, 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 big, the big arts institutions in the UK, the Tate and the Tate Modern, is sponsored by EY. And yet they're coming out with with this kind of communication. I think it's it's remarkable and very telling about their perspective on the tech, but also on humanity itself. Um, So in the same report that that image came from, they they, they put a quote from this guy, uh, Gordon M. Goldstein from the Council on Foreign Relations, who's calling for AI regulation. So he sees the biggest challenge to AI AI as being regulation. Uh, Despite the growing need for robust AI regulation, it's going to be extremely hard to achieve. Television took five years to regulate. Airlines took 20 years to regulate. And most estimates for AI think it will take a decade to regulate this technology. And it's also interesting to think about the role of Ofcom, the UK media regulator, over the past few weeks, and whether that's a model that we'd actually wish to emulate for AI. They've been highly censorious in regulating um, uh, 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 communications across uh, uh, British television networks. Um, do we want to see that same, those same principles, those same, same ideas applied to AI? I think probably not. Unfortunately, though, um, the UK are taking a lead on AI regulation, and um, uh, not least through the upcoming AI Safety Summit, which is taking place at the start of November at Bletchley Park. Um, It's going to be attended by a host of international technologists, diplomats, academics, uh, even representatives from people like the Chinese government, for example, who are also understandably very keen on artificial intelligence. They use it extensively across the CCP system. 
Um, it's being coordinated. The summit is being coordinated by two people. Uh, these are appointees of Rishi Sunak. So essentially they are his Sherpas. Uh, they are his representatives at the forum. The first is this guy, Matt Clifford, who is also the chairman of ARIA, which is the UK version of DARPA, which has launched in the past couple of years. Very interesting organization. He is the chair there and also representing Sunak at the AI Safety Club Summit. His view is that the opportunities that AI presents are truly transformative. Top of the list is healthcare. The UK is investing heavily in this area. And then there's AI's contribution to tackling climate change. And finally, AI has the potential to, to support both students and teachers across the country. So healthcare, climate change and education, which is exactly what Tony Blair has been talking about. And also what Netanyahu spoke about at the UN a couple of weeks ago, as we showed on the news last Friday. Um, the other Sherpa, the other person representing the UK is this gentleman, Jonathan Black, who is a senior civil servant and also the current fellow of the Hayward Foundation. And as a fellow of the Hayward Foundation, he's focused on national security and economic interests. And he sees the intersection between those two things as being particularly important, right? So uh, economics and the markets and national security and the state, you know, the power and money, ultimately, where those two things come together, that's what he's focused on. Um, and uh, as a Hayward fellow, he's actually a representative of the Hayward Foundation, and the Hayward Foundation was set up after the death of Jeremy Hayward, who was the former head of the UK Civil Service. He died in 2021, who also has uh, himself and the Civil Service have an extraordinarily close and deeply embedded relationship with EY, aka Ernst & Young, to bring us full circle on where we started on this, right? So actually what we're looking at here is a situation where the regulator, the people setting the rules, are also at the same time completely aligned with the people that they're supposed to be regulating. So there's an image that we've just got here of Jeremy Hayward speaking at the Civil Service Awards, promoting a brilliant civil service, sponsored, headline sponsored by EY. This is from 2017. Um, but EY are still heavily embedded into the UK civil service. So this relationship between the regulator and the people that they are supposed to be regulating is extraordinarily close and I think deserves much closer scrutiny. It doesn't feel appropriate to me. Um, UK government is also uh, working with a bunch of other um, big consulting firms. Uh, just this week, David Knott, uh, the UK government chief technology officer has been at the IBM offices in London talking about generative AI in government. IBM is also a strategic partner to the World Economic Forum. And uh, as David Scott and I spoke about earlier on this year, is working in life sciences with companies like Moderna, very interestingly, to think about how they can use generative AI to hack the human genome and build on the RNA technologies that have been developed through the COVID vaccines and, 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 and which have caused so much damage over the past few years, as um, evidenced by this afternoon's debate in the House of Commons that Andrew Bridgen is going to be speaking at. Um, so I think that, that this is uh, a um, really troubling development. Um, and uh, um, from that perspective, and then also just from an economic perspective, a really interesting announcement from Deloitte, uh, which came out today, which just shows the end point of all of this, ultimately, just in the economic system, is that there are going to be fewer high-value jobs for humanity and more control and profit for the people who are running the corporate system. So Deloitte has laid off 150 junior consultants as part of a wider round of 800 redundancies. That's despite the fact that partners earn a million pounds each last year, a lot of that driven by government work. And essentially what's happening is the lower value work, the more mundane work, the research and the analysis that was previously carried out by more junior consultants is now being automated, replaced by artificial intelligence in order to maximize profits for the people who own, who own the organization. And ultimately that is what is driving a huge amount of this. 
Okay, Ben, thank you very much for that. Uh, this is an area we will be uh, looking a lot more at in the coming uh, months. But uh, I suppose a slightly related issue then is uh, central bank digital currencies. Uh, and well, you'll everybody will be glad to know that the European Union has, or the European Central Bank rather, has decided to announce that it is, or the governing council has decided to announce to the that they're moving to the next phase of the digital euro project. Uh, they're calling this the preparation phase. Uh, this decision, they say, follows the completion of the investigation phase launched by the uh, euro system in October 2021 to explore the possible design and distribution models for a digital euro. Um, so uh, the lovely Christine Lagarde uh, had something to say on this. Let's just have a look at that. The digital euro is on the move. Yesterday, the governing council of the ECB approved the opening of the preparation phase. It will be a journey and we will walk the journey together with the legislator. All European institutions will be involved to make sure that Europe is equipped with the currency of the future. Cash is here to stay. You will have all options, cash and digital cash. So what does it mean for you? For consumers, it would be free and easy to use everywhere in the Euro area. All of that, of course, is subject to the legislative process. Cash or digital, the choice will be yours. Your euro, your choice. So do we believe that? Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, key point I thought out of that was uh, together with the legislators. So uh, the European Central Bank will be walking the legislators through the necessary legislation. Uh, she's claiming that cash uh, will be uh, still available for people, uh, but for how long is the question. Uh, now, they, uh, they published uh, an, uh, sorry, a, a uh, report on this. Uh, here it is, uh, the stock take of the digital euro. Um, so based on the findings from the, uh, the uh, investigation phase, they said they have published this report, uh, and this is designed, has designed a digital euro that will be widely accessible to citizens and businesses throughout uh, distribution by, a supervised, by supervised intermediaries such as banks. Uh, so some of the uh, commentary that we've had on central bank digital currency uh, it hasn't been entirely clear where the so-called wallet that uh, your digital currency uh, will be held in uh, would would exist, uh, because certainly uh, because it is central bank digital currency, ultimately the accounts are with the central bank. But as to this issue of whether cash is has a long-term future or not, um, I'm just going to play this uh, this little piece of video of uh, Augustine uh, Carson's from the BIS. Many of you will have seen this before, uh, but this is really gets the nuts and bolts of why uh, central banks are so keen and banks are so keen uh, to bring this uh, agenda forward. Aren't our analysis on CBDC in particular for the use of general, to the general use, uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today, we don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. A key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, she, to what cash is. Um. So in light of uh, the statement uh, from the BIS, uh, we may want to reconsider Christine Lagarde's reassurances that cash will always be available. Uh, and then just to end this segment, I want to bring this on from the BIS themselves. Uh, because they are concerned about uh, the potential for uh, cyber hacks and so on on central bank digital currency. So they're running an event uh, the first week, of, sorry, the second week of August, uh, second week of November, uh, 8th to 9th of November, entitled Securing the Future Monetary System. 
And they say as central banks explore the possibility of issuing CBDC, cybersecurity is emerging as a paramount concern. The CBDC ecosystem adds new attack services and risks to an already complex cybersecurity landscape for central banks. Uh, well, indeed. But of course, that is not uh, causing them to reconsider moving forward with this agenda or slowing it down in any way. In fact, they're speeding it up. Uh, and I'm not certain that they have any particular answers for this. Okay, let's uh, move back to international uh, affairs. And Vanessa, uh, what's the response been uh, sort of more broadly to what's been going on in Gaza? Well, regionally, uh, Syria declared um, uh, three days of mourning after the bombing of the vicinity, the area around, uh, and some extensive damage to the Baptist Hospital itself. Uh, those three days end tomorrow, but there have been uh, solidarity rallies across Damascus and across the, the region. Uh, millions of Palestinians inside Jordan going to the border, demanding that it's open. Uh, busloads of Iraqis going to join the Palestinians at those border demonstrations. But from um, a military perspective, some interesting developments. First of all, explosions were heard at U.S. military sites in Iraq and in Syria. Interesting that I think for the first time, the U.S. Victoria military base, which is adjacent to Baghdad airport, was targeted, as well as the Ain al-Assad base, which is uh, deeper into Iraqi territory. There was uh, one death, apparently, uh, of a heart attack following uh, the, the attacks on the base in Ain al-Assad. But there were also attacks on um, the uh, oil occupation, uh, the U.S. military in uh, Al-Omar and the Conoco uh, oil field in the northeast of Syria and directly against the U.S. military base in Al-Tanif in the southeast. There have also been ISIS attacks against military and civilian positions, of course, being generated from within the Al-Tanif military base. Now, one of the more interesting ones is that the coalition government in Yemen that also comprises of the Ansrullah uh, resistance apparently fired missiles. Now, Israel is claiming the missiles were fired uh, targeting Israel. Pentagon officials are also saying the same thing, that the missiles were potentially targeting Israel and were intercepted um, by a, a, a U.S. Navy warship off the coast of Yemen. So um, obviously, um, as regards the, the threat of ground evasion uh, by uh, the IOF, it's becoming rather like Zelensky's counteroffensive in Ukraine. It's been talked about for more than a week now and still hasn't happened. But the, the rhetoric from uh, within the region is that um, if there is a ground evasion, there will be a bigger reaction from the resistance axis in the region. Um, we have also here um, McCall preparing authorization of military force against Hamas and against Iran proxies. Now, the Iranian proxy story is what is also being pushed by the likes of the BBC in the UK. Um, and if we look at what McCall actually says, um, so he's the House Foreign Affairs Committee chairman, said he's drafting legislation to authorize the use of US military force should the war between Israel and Hamas widen. It's worth pointing out that eight uh, um, Navy ships from the U.S. have now uh, entered the eastern Mediterranean, three destroyers, one landing ship, one guided missile cruiser, one amphibious, amphibious assault vessel, and two aircraft carriers. So everything is escalating. And as you said, Mike, nobody is talking peace. Nobody is talking negotiation. And nobody seems to want to, to, to dampen things down and to broker a ceasefire. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. And uh, Ben, let's come back to you then. Uh, and w last uh, week, I think it was, we were talking about Palantir. Uh, you've got a little bit more. Yeah. So I received this uh, fantastic article into my inbox from Unlimited. Uh, and uh, basically it is a extraordinary deconstruction of Peter Thiel and his work at Palantir. Well, we seem to have some technical difficulties. Uh, um, 
Yeah, Ben. Sorry, we we've just we've just had a few. You've just uh, dropped out quite a bit there. So maybe you could just uh, uh, give us a little bit of that again. So we heard uh, this article from uh, uh, Unlimited Hang Hang Hangout on Peter Thiel. Sharing with the signal. Um, yes, go ahead. Are you there? Yeah. Go for it. Okay. Apologies. So, yeah, it's, it's a great article. It's from Unlimited Hangout. Um, it's talking about Teal, Peter Teal, uh, the founder of Palantir, and also uh, his, his work at Palantir and with a network of other companies that he's invested in. Um, you'll remember that Palantir, the CIA-backed artificial intelligence specialist, is the front runner to pick up the UK NHS Federated Data Platform contract, which is the nearly £500 million contract to build a single integrated patient data platform for the NHS, for our health system. Um, and uh, the, the, the business, Palantir, and the person who founded it and, and backed it, Peter Thiel, also sits at the nexus of this network of advanced weapons manufacturers. And it's absolutely remarkable to dig into some of the stuff that he's involved in, including an $800 million contract with the US Army to create a battlefield intelligence system, a $91 million contract to develop the US Army Research Lab's AI and ML uh, machine learning capabilities, an involvement with Project Maven, which is a U.S. Department of Defense-powered project for improving drone footage and striking capabilities, which was originally won by Google, but then Google had to resign due to internal pressure from its own staff, actually, were basically complaining about the type of work that they were being put onto, um, and then Palantir picked it up. They've also created a facial recognition system being used by the Ukraine military who are actually sending images of dead Russian soldiers back to their families. That's really one of the most ghoulish things that, that I've heard of, right? Like it's incredibly vindictive, like identifying soldiers and then sending images proactively to their families to tell them um, that, 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 their, that their sons have died. It's just, just quite remarkable. Um, Teal is also, again, uh, revealed in the article, um, provided significant funds to a business called Carbine 911, which is heavily linked to Israeli intelligence and was also backed by Jeffrey Epstein. Um, I mean, this is incredibly mucky stuff. Um, one of the things that really jumped out at me from this is that um, Teal and his businesses are taking a completely different approach to working with the military industrial complex. So the way that suppliers previously would have worked with the military is the military would specify technologies that it wanted and then go to the market to get private contractors to build those technologies. What Teal and his organizations are doing is actually proactively creating more deadly weapons and thinking of ways that they can use their technologies in, more, in, 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 in a more deadly fashion and then going to the military to sell it to them. So they've completely reversed that relationship. And uh, I think that's absolutely staggering in the context of the fact that this guy is in the, the pole position to be picking up uh, the NHS um, uh, Federated Data Platform contract. I mean, it's bad enough that they're doing it, but the idea that you would want people like this and organisations like this circulating around our health system, I just find absolutely remarkable. Um, there's another great quote in there from Whitney Webb, uh, which basically says that Palantir was created to be the privatised panopticon of the national security state, the newest rebranding of intelligence agencies to, to quash dissent and instill obedience in the US government there. Um, but that is absolutely how those technologies are being deployed elsewhere as well. I'd be fascinated to find out what um, their on the ground activity with Israel has been over the past few weeks in light of everything that Yeah, okay. And that we've just seen, um, which builds on what Whitney Webb's quote has highlighted, but that Peter Thiel is actually um, an FBI informant. Yeah, so he is uh, actively working with US intelligence agencies as an informant on uh, uh, things that are going on inside Silicon Valley, things that are going on in advanced technology, and also through his political connections. And he's, he's, 
is um, sending that information directly to the FBI for them to use in their investigations. So he is absolutely hand in glove with US um, intelligence agencies. And um, I really just think that uh, we, we have got to get to grips with whether we can allow these types of people and the organizations that they represent access to not just our health system, but really any part of our society at all. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ben. Thank you for that. And I were just uh, very quickly going to end uh, with this uh, because this was being tweeted out by Tess Laurie earlier. Uh, 86 days and still no date for this parliamentary debate. And she's talking about the debate, the petition. Uh, to hold a parliamentary vote on whether to reject amendments to the International Health Regulations 2005. And the uh, petition, which is closed, of course, and had received 116,319 signatures, uh, had said, we're concerned that Parliament has not discussed and will not have a say on the 307 proposed amendments uh, to the International Health Regulations and the amendments to the five articles of the IHR that were adopted by the 75th World Health Assembly on the 27th of May. Uh, 2022. And Tess Laurie is then saying in her tweet, we've only until the 1st of December to reject the I I IHR amendments adopted last year. Uh, they're trying to delay the debate. Uh, sorry, are they trying to delay the debate uh, so that it's too late? And uh, I suspect that they are indeed doing that. Uh, and well, maybe uh, we need to be uh, putting a little pressure on in this area as well. Uh, look, that's all we have uh, for you today. Thank you very much to Vanessa and to Ben. Uh, for today's program. We will be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra if you UK call member. Uh, if you're not, uh, we will see you at 1pm on Monday as usual. I uh, hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.